Welcome to the Refine Your Health podcast with Dr. Dion. I'm a primary care physician, and now I can happily add podcaster. Tune in to each episode to hear great information on improving health outcomes, disease prevention, and overall community health advocacy. Thanks for listening. Now let's jump into today's episode to improve your health. Hello, listeners. It is your host, Dr. Dion. I want to first start off by saying Happy New Year to everyone. I hope everyone had a safe and joyous holiday season. But yes, we have arrived into a new year. And I want to say that I am optimistic and hopeful that this year will be a great journey for all of us and that there's no better time than now to start the year off right by focusing on our health, focusing on our mind, making sure that we are eating well, as well as making sure that we're taking care of our physical body. I want to start off this year by talking about cervical cancer. And the reason why is that this month is dedicated to cervical cancer awareness. Now, I know we're going to be focusing mostly on the women this episode. However, men, if you came across this episode, please feel free to share with the women in your lives this episode so they can get information about cervical cancer screening and basically to improve their overall health. So let's just get right into it. So what is cervical cancer? Cervical cancer is when cancer cells within the cervix grow out of control. And some of you may be wondering, where is the cervix? Cervix is part of the female reproductive system. It connects the vagina, which is the birth canal, to the uterus, which is better known as the womb, where a baby grows throughout a pregnancy in women. According to the National Cervical Coalition, 13,000 women in the United States are diagnosed with invasive cervical cancer each year and over 4,200 die as a result. But the reason that we're talking about cervical cancer is that it is considered one of the most preventable of all female cancers. And looking at the data from the CDC website, which is basically the Center for Disease Control, in 2017, the data that they showed revealed that the United States had 12,831 new cases of cervical cancer. And of those new cases, 4,207 died. So if you look at 100,000 women of those eight new cervical cancer cases would have been diagnosed. And of those two women would die of those eight. And I was looking at the dis disparities in regards to race and the impact of cervical cancer. So if you look at the African-American and Hispanic race, new cervical cancer cases occur in eight to nine women per 100,000 versus Caucasians, where it occur in mostly seven women per 100,000 and less likely in American Indians, as well as Asian Pacific Islanders, where they are more at risk at six per 100,000. And we don't know why these differences exist. However, some thought is that it's due to genetics, hormones, environmental exposures, and other factors. After looking at some of the statistics regarding cervical cancer, what are the risk factors that places someone at risk for cervical cancer? Being a woman, having human papillomavirus. And for those of you who do not know what human papillomavirus are better known as HPV, it's a common virus that can pass from one person to another, either through skin to skin contact or through vaginal, anal or oral sex with someone who has the virus. There are many types of HPV and some of these viral strands cause cervical cancer and other types cause genital or skin warts. In women, HPV or human papillomavirus will go away on its own. 
However, if it does not, this is what often places women at increased risk for cervical cancer. According to the National Foundation for Infectious Disease, about 79 million people, most in their late teens and early 20s, currently are infected with HPV and an additional 14 million are estimated to be infected each year. Along with the risk factors of not only having HPV or being a woman, HIV infection also increases your risk for cervical cancer, as well as conditions where you may be immune compromised. So basically, when you're immune compromised, your immune system is low functioning where it cannot fight off infection. Smoking is a risk factor, prolonged use of birth control, basically using it longer than five or more years giving birth to three or more children, multiple sex partners. So now that we know what the risk factors are, what are some of the signs and symptoms that you need to look out for where you need to seek medical attention to be screened for concerns for cervical cancer risk? Let me start off just by saying this. Women with early cervical and precancerous findings often have no symptoms. Symptoms often do not begin until the cancer becomes large and grows into nearby tissue. Okay, so what are some of the signs and symptoms? The most common is pain in the pelvic region. Basically, that's the area between your hips, below your belly button and involved in the genital or private area. Pain during sex. Having an unusual discharge from the vagina, which may contain blood. It may occur between periods or after menopause. Also, there's abnormal vaginal bleeding that may occur after sex. You may have it occur after menopause. Also, your periods are longer and heavier than usual. Also, you may have uh, bleeding after douching. For more advanced disease, which this is something that I gathered information from the American Cancer Society. If you have more advanced disease, there's swelling of the legs, problems urinating or having bowel movements. There may be blood in your urine. But I want everyone to keep in mind, these are potential signs and symptoms of cervical cancer. However, they also may represent signs and symptoms of other conditions. So this is why I'm going to emphasize that it's important if you exhibit any of these signs and symptoms that you present to a primary care physician or an OBGYN so you can get an appropriate exam and workup as warranted to determine if the problems that you are having Is it either due to cervical cancer or some other issue? Let's transition now to how is it screened or diagnosed in a medical office? There are two screening tests that exist for cervical cancer screening. One is the pap test, or most women know it as the pap smear. And second is the HPV test, which we discussed earlier, which is screening for the human papillomavirus. Now, the pap smear looks for precancer cells changes of the cervix, which may develop into cervical cancer. The pap test allows the doctor to examine the vagina and the cervix and collect a few cells from the cervix and surrounding areas, and this is sent to the laboratory. Now, I want to make clear that there's a difference between a pelvic exam where the physician may just look at the anatomy and take a swab test, especially within the vaginal wall or genital area if there are some complaints that a woman may present to the office with, um, especially if there's documentation that she's had a recent pap smear and it was normal and there's no risk for any concerns for potential cervical cancer. 
cancer. And that's why I encourage women when they go to a physician's office to discuss during a pelvic examination if a pap smear will be obtained. Because some instances I've had ladies come to my office as a new patient and they may think that they've had a pap smear within the past year and it wasn't the case. They had some uh, acute complaints or issues that they presented to the doctor's office with and they've had normal paps in the past. And most often women just assume that they automatically go ahead and do a pap smear test with pelvic exams. So that's why I think it's important for women to have conversations with their physician and be more aware about testing that um, has been obtained. So you can not only know if you had recent screening and what most recent labs that you had uh, done. So sometimes things don't have to be repeated, especially if it was recent. The second screening test is the HPV test or the human papillomavirus screening test. And that looks for the HPV virus, which are viruses that can cause cell changes, which may place a woman at risk for cervical cancer. And I usually tell individuals when these screening tests are done, usually it may take up to three weeks for the results to come back for both of these tests. But on average in my office, I usually see um, return on lab results usually within a week to a week and a half. Ladies, I want to make sure that you are aware of how to prepare for your PAP or HPV screening test. You should make sure that you do not schedule your test for a time when you are having your period. And if you're going to have a test in the next two days prior to that testing, you should not douche, which basically means rinsing the vagina with any water or any other fluid. You should not use a tampon. You should not have sex. You should not use birth control, foam, cream, or jelly. And you should not use a medicine or cream in your vaginal area. I often get this question about these two screening tests. A lot of women ask me about when should they, you know, get these screening tests. Now, women, if you have some of these signs and symptoms that we discussed earlier, the screening intervals that I'm about to discuss go out the window because, of course, we want to make sure that nothing has changed. So we'll go ahead and get appropriate screening uh, tests for any type of new signs and symptoms. But based on the current guidelines for routine screening, and this is what I usually tell women to make sure that they discuss their need for routine annual cervical cancer screening with their primary care doctors or their OBGYN at their routine annual physicals. However, the current guidelines state, according to the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, as well as the United States Preventive Services Task Force, states that screening for cervical cancer should not start before the age of 21. So there's no screening less than 21 years of age. I know I've had uh, some patients come to my office and a lot of parents and young ladies think that they should begin screening in their teens or if they've started having sexual intercourse early. According to current guidelines, pap smears and screening for cervical cancer as far as HPV should not begin less than 21 years of age. So we start typically at age 21 to 29 where we can screen with pap smear alone. And if that's normal, we do a pap smear every three years. Now for women 30 to age 65, we can still do the pap smear alone and check every three years, 
or we can also do the HPV alone and check that every five years, especially if it's normal or negative. There is a co-test where you can do both, where you do the pap smear and the HPV at the same time. And if those are normal, you do routine screening every five years. I use the co-test in my office, especially for the women 30 to 65 years of age, instead of doing um, one or the other, because I think it gives you a greater idea of the risk for cervical cancer. And I don't think I mentioned it earlier, most cervical cancer findings in regards to being diagnosed is often greater than the age of 30. So that's why I think it's important to uh, do the co-testing with the HPV test as well as the pap smear at the same time. And if they look good, then you can do the spacing interval of every five years. But I like to screen with the co-test every three years because a lot of my patients have risk factors that from my standpoint, as far as if you're um, higher frequency risk, you know, based on race, or if you had some risk factors uh, for cervical cancer, I usually pr uh, prefer to do every three years. And majority of my colleagues uh, follow this pattern as well. However, it is okay to, long as those two tests are negative, to have it every five years. But consensus from majority of my colleagues is that five years can be prolonged, especially if you're dealing with a high-risk population. Now, routine screening for cervical cancer usually should stop greater than age 65, especially if there's documentation that women have had normal pap smears in the past, as well as HPV testing. Also, women do not need to have routine pap smears if they have had a hysterectomy, which basically includes the removal of the cervix and do not have a history of any type of previous cervical pre-cancer findings or history of cervical cancer. And for those individuals who may not understand what a hysterectomy is, hysterectomy could be a total or partial. Total is they remove everything in regards to the reproductive system within a woman. That's removing the ovaries, the fallopian tubes, that's the tubes that connect to the ovaries, um, the uterus, which is the womb that holds the baby, as well as the cervix. Partial, that may involve removing just the the uterus and the cervix or just the uterus alone, a uterus and the ovaries or one of the ovaries because you have ovaries on both sides of the uh, uterus. So for those women who have had a hysterectomy without the removal of the cervix, which is called supracervical hysterectomy, they should continue routine cervical cancer screening. That means they remove other components of the reproductive system, but they left the cervix in place. You will need to continue routine cervical cancer screening. Now, there are myths out there that some believe that once they are done having babies, that they should stop routine cervical cancer screening, and that is false. In addition, I want to mention too that if there is a history of serious precancerous diagnosis, a woman should continue routine screening at least 25 years after the condition was diagnosed. So if that goes beyond that 65 years of age where we typically stop screening, you need to continue screening until you have reached that time frame of 25 years after the initial diagnosis of a serious precancerous disease. 
I want to make sure that I mention while I'm thinking about it is that the HPV test looks for infection that is caused by the high risk strand types of HPV. Those strands that are looked at from this particular test are the ones that may likely cause precancer and cancers of the cervix. After discussing the screening test, the question that I often receive from some of my patients, and you actually may be asking yourself, okay, how much is this going to cost for me to have this done? Many states, private, Medicaid, and public employee health care plans pay for regular screenings, and federal coverage of cervical cancer tests is mandated by the Affordable Care Act, but that does not apply to health care plans that were in place before it was passed. So it's best for you all to contact your health insurance plan administrator to determine if your health care plan was on or after the key date of September 23rd, 2010, when the Affordable Health Care Act went into effect. There's Medicaid coverage routinely based on doctor recommendations for screenings as well. And they'll cover that based on if it's recommended by your physician, even if it's less than the routine recommended intervals that we kind of discussed based on the guidelines. And that also includes Medicare Part B as well, if you have that coverage. According to the American Cancer Society, there is a increased number of women who are without health insurance and women who have recently immigrated to the U.S. that are less likely to have have had cervical cancer screening, as well as women with lower incomes. If there is an increased risk for lack of screening, there's also increased risk for missing a potential diagnosis of cervical cancer. To decrease that risk, I want to make sure that you all are aware of a program that exists out there called the National Breast and Cervical Cancer Early Detection Program. This program it offers free or low-cost screening for cervical cancer as well as breast cancer screening. I will put the link in the show notes, but if you click on the link that I provide, it will provide uh, information regarding the eligibility requirements as well as the uh, map of the United States. And if you click on your state, it will pull up the information regarding the contact information to call your local uh, state department to get information about the program as well as to see if you qualify. Therefore, I do not want people to feel like there are no options out there regarding routine breast as well as cervical cancer screening. So that program exists. Check it out in the show notes. And hopefully for you women out there that may feel like you don't have any health insurance or you can't afford it, these programs exist to assist you. So now let's transition to what happens once um, a physician gets the results. Now, of course, if your tests are normal for the pap smear as well as the HPV testing, you just continue your routine interval screening as we discussed earlier. However, there may be some abnormal or concerns for an abnormal pap smear or a positive HPV test. So what do we do in those instances? 
there may be a test result that is unclear. And typically that presents as a typical squamous cells of undetermined significance. So that's basically an inconclusive finding. So that may be related to life changes like menopause or recent infection or pregnancy. So what helps determine if further testing is needed regarding repeat pap smear or maybe even more invasive studies or procedures would be the use of the HPV testing. If that test is determined to be inconclusive, then we use the HPV test to assist to determine if there, the changes are related to potential cervical cancer risk. Now, if the test results is abnormal, that means cell changes are found. That doesn't automatically mean that you have cervical cancer. So I want to make that clear. If you have an abnormal pap, that does not mean that you have cervical cancer. What that means is that we may need to do some further testing based on those results. And those changes could be minor, which is low grade or more serious, which is high grade changes. And the minor changes often come back normal with close monitoring, which basically means a repeat pap smear. The more serious changes, which indicate there are more precancerous types of cells that needs to be investigated more. Now, there are rare cases that may show cancer cells with the pap smear alone, but that's often found in very rare cases. Looking at the HPV screening test, if that comes back positive, then what is looked at next is, is there a link to potential cervical cancer. And what will be looked at at that time is what particular viral strand is found in this particular sample. If it's positive for that high risk strand of HPV, then that's where additional testing would be warranted, just like an abnormal pap smear test would uh, warrant additional testing. So in some instances where you may have an abnormal pap plus a positive HPV, this will result in an additional testing such as more invasive type of procedures more so than the uh, pap smear and those particular procedures some of you may have heard of these before such as the colposcopy which basically screens for abnormal areas around the cervix and obtain a small tissue sample and that is sent to the lab to determine if there is actual precancer or true cancer cells or some other finding. There's additional testing as well that is more advanced than the colposcopy. Some of you may have heard of a LEAP procedure, which is a loop electrosurgical procedure, which is basically a bigger tissue sample than typically you would get from a colposcopy. Another test is basically an endocervical scraping where they get a small sample of the cervical cells that is involved in the opening of the cervix that leads into the uterus. I just want to make sure that you all are aware that these more invasive tests such as the colposcopy, the LEAP procedures, the endocervical scrapings are done by specialists such as the OBGYN to further evaluate an abnormal screening test such as an abnormal PAP and, and a positive HPV test. Let's say after they send it to the lab and the pathology comes back and says, yes, that this is a true cancer, this is positive for cervical cancer. Then the management 
from that point on usually transitions to another type of specialist, which we call a gynecological oncologist. These are specialists who manage cervical cancer cases when the diagnosis becomes apparent. And there are many types of treatments for cervical cancer. However, the most important determinant of how cervical cancer is managed is based on the staging. I don't know if many of you were able to check out my previous episode on breast cancer, but cancer is treated based on how it is staged. And what I mean by staging is, does the cancer remain localized within the particular area itself? In this case, the cervix, or does it spread to other surrounding tissues? Does it spread to the bone? Does it spread to other organs throughout the body, such as your lungs, your kidneys, your intestines, things of that nature? So Determine if it's more localized, then it's more of a lower stage of a cancer diagnosis. If it's more what we call advanced, where it's spread to other um, parts of the body, where we consider a diagnosis of metastatic cancer, then that will be considered more of a higher stage of cervical cancer. And most of the staging is determined by not only the laboratory studies, but also imaging that the specialist may obtain to determine what stage of cervical cancer diagnosis an individual may be in. As far as the different treatments that currently exist from what I was able to obtain uh, from my research is that surgery is an option where they remove the cancer tissue itself will be something that will be determined based on the findings from the the specialist in regards to the staging, as I mentioned previously. And then there's chemotherapy, which are considered special medicines, which are used to shrink or kill the cancer cells. It may come in a pill form or IV, which when we say IV, that means it's injected into your veins and is used to treat the cancer. And the other option is radiation, where you basically use high energy rays to kill the cancer. As I mentioned, your treatment management will be individualized based on your stage of cancer that you have been diagnosed with. After getting all this information about cervical cancer, you may be asking yourselves, okay, what can I do to prevent it? So number one, we already talked about one way that you can prevent it is making sure that you get your routine screening. However, there's another way that we can decrease your risk of developing cervical cancer, and that's through the human papilloma vaccine. Ladies may know of the Gardasil vaccination. That's basically the HPV vaccine, which uh, decreases the risk of getting the HPV strands that are considered high risk for cervical cancer, as well as the low risk types that cause genital warts. And the reason that is recommended as a preventative measure, statistics show, according to the CDC, that 85% of individuals will get HPV in their lifetime. So there has been shown some benefit in decreasing this risk by 86% with this vaccine in teenage girls. So Let's look at the dosing regimen for the HPV vaccine. The first dose is recommended at age 11 to 12 years old for young ladies as well as young boys. And it's recommended for both girls and boys because as we discussed earlier, based on the mode of transmission, it can be from skin to skin contact or from sexual transmission. And the earliest age that you can start the vaccine is at age nine. And The second dose 
is recommended six to 12 months after the first dose. And the age range for a vaccination is between ages nine to 26 years of age. Now, some adults can get the vaccine between the age of 27 to 45, but the benefits of vaccination at that time should be discussed with your primary care provider because there has been shown to be less of a benefit at that time because many may have been exposed to HPV by this age range. If you get the vaccine before the age of 15, then you will only need two doses. However, if you're 15 and above, you will need three doses. And it's been shown that if you get the vaccine at an earlier age, such as when you're a preteen, the vaccine has been shown to produce a stronger immune response. So some individuals ask about the potential side effects of the vaccination. Of course, with any potential vaccine, there's actual risk of pain and redness or swelling at the site of the injection. There also, I've noticed, and especially in my adolescence with getting the HPV vaccine, that there's increased dizziness or fainting risk. But a lot of times I believe that to be related to just a vasovagal response to actually getting the injection. Some have increased anxiety with getting vaccinations itself, but you know, with this vaccine it's noted to have some increased dizziness or fainting. So that's why we have munching lying down or sitting 15 minutes after injection to minimize these potential side effect risks. Also, there may be a risk for nausea or headache. And these are considered uh, mild effects. I would say that 95 to 99% of my patients that receive this vaccine uh, do very well and have minimal to no side effects. I would recommend if you're interested in the vaccine to have a discussion with your primary care provider or OBGYN to discuss the risk and benefits of receiving the vaccination. I often get asked, is the HPV vaccine covered by insurance plans? Many insurance plans cover the costs for the HPV vaccine in accordance with the Federal Advisory Committee on Immunizations Practices, as well as the Federal Vaccine for Children, which is better known as the VFC, covers vaccine costs for children and teens who do not have insurance are who are underinsured. Now, the Children Health Insurance Program, better known as CHIP, does exist under the Medicaid program and it is for low cost health care coverage for children and families that earn too much money to qualify for Medicaid. But each state program has its own rules of who qualifies for the CHIP program. So that's why it's so important to make sure that when these elections come up, that these individuals that are elected to offices in the federal as well as down to the state level, that you make sure that they have your best interests in mind in regards to your overall health care coverage, because you can see how these programs that are in place can help cover a lot of your health care costs. So please use your vote as your voice. I know we covered a lot of information for this episode, but I want you to remain positive. And like I mentioned earlier, cervical cancer is preventable as long as you make sure that you get your routine screening and discuss with your primary care provider to see if you're a candidate for the HPV vaccine. And of course, if you have any of the signs and symptoms discussed, definitely seek immediate medical evaluation to further assess your risk for cervical cancer or other medical conditions. 
And with that being said, continue to make sure that your health is a priority, mind, body, and spirit. And to make sure that you check out my next episode. And if you found this to be helpful, please subscribe. Please tell other individuals about it and leave a five-star review on your streaming platform of choice. And this is your host, Dr. Dion. Take care. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please subscribe and feel free to tell your family and friends to check out the podcast. And remember, this podcast is for educational purposes only and the thoughts and opinions do not constitute medical advice.